As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Britain to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 26, Which Wallula? Traditional migrant bands of Walla Walla, Nez Perce, Cayuse, and Umatilla peoples inhabited the area near Wallula. The name Wallula is a shortened version of the Nez Perce word Walla Walla, which roughly translates as flowing streams. The Wallula region was also the birthplace of Smohalla, a very well-known Wanapum spiritual leader who rose to prominence in the late 1800s. Smohalla was a shaman who possessed supernatural abilities such as the ability to foretell salmon runs and earthquakes. He was also adamantly opposed to the cession of territory to whites and the assimilation into white culture. Later, he would be inducted into Washington's Centennial Hall of Honor, where he was recognized as one of the Evergreen State's 100 most significant people in the history of the state. I'll talk more in length about Smohalla at the end of this episode. As a result of the construction of Fort Nez Perces by Donald McKenzie of the Northwest Company in Wallula, this area became one of the earliest European communities in the future Evergreen State. This fort would later become known as Fort Walla Walla. Located on the site of what would become Wallula, the Northwest Company's fortification would be constructed in 1818 as it competed with the Hudson's Bay Company for dominance of the Northwest fur trade. The fort would be purchased by the Hudson's Bay Company in 1821. The area was already a well-known stop for explorers before the fort was built. Its location on the east bank of the Columbia River, near the mouth of the Walla Walla River, and approximately 10 miles downstream from the junction of the Snake and Columbia Rivers, made it an ideal spot for explorers who wanted to scout the area by canoe before setting out. In 1805 and 1806, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark came through on their Corps of Discovery mission, stopping at the mouth of the Walla Walla River on their way back to camp with a band of Walla Wallas. They were presented with a white horse as a gift by their chief Yellopt. David Thompson, a Canadian explorer who landed in the area in 1810-1811 under the banner of the Pacific Fur Company and did some exploration. The fort had weathered more than its fair share of adversity. It was destroyed by a fire in 1841, but it was rebuilt within a few months, using adobe bricks for good measure. Because of the threat of violence, the fort would be abandoned during the Indian Wars of the 1850s. After some time, it would actually be relocated to a location that was closer to the current city of Walla Walla. Because of its location on the Columbia River, Wallula was saved from extinction from the closure of Fort Nez Perces. It quickly rose to the top of the importance list as a port for supplying the expanding Walla Walla. Steamers and barges delivered cargo to Walla Walla and from there coaches and other freight-laden vehicles traveled overland to the larger cities inland. 
According to one estimate, by 1862, about 150 tons of freight per week was arriving at the Wallula port. In addition, between 50 and 600 passengers passed through the station each week. Wallulan A.S. Johnson, an old-timer who wrote an opinion piece for the Spokesman Review in 1929, recalled that Wallula was a riverboat town during those days, and he goes on to say, As a result of the Concord stagecoaches leaving with people for Walla Walla and other northern destinations, freighters with their four, six, and eight-horse teams and pack trains loaded their freight in this historic settlement. In Walla Walla, much of the freight was committed to merchants who then redistributed it to various points throughout the upper region, which has since become known as the Enormous Inland Empire. While trains were desperately needed to speed while trains were desperately needed to speed up business in Wallula, they had yet to come despite the acute demand for one. The enterprising locals determined that they could not wait for the Northern Pacific to arrive. Using the assistance of local bankers and labor, Dorsey S. Baker, a Walla Walla physician, took matters into his own hands and assisted in the construction of a rail line. The railway, which ran from Wallula to Walla Walla, was finished in 1875 and connected the two cities. A user could move a ton of goods on the line for just $5. The 32-mile length of railway, which became known as the Rawhide Railroad or the Strap Iron Line, was constructed entirely of timber rails and strap iron. The worn wood and metal resembled rawhide strips, which led to the name being given to the structure, and also led to the local legend that the railroad was built with rawhide, though it was most certainly not. Approximately 16,766 tons of freight was received at Wallula by the Oregon Steam and Navigation Company by 1876. Of that total, only 1,500 tons was freight moved by coaches or teams. The remaining 15,266 tons were transported by rail. By 1881, the railway had been converted to a standard gauge and was integrated into the Northern Pacific Railroad system, which ran from Portland to Seattle. After transitioning from being a fur trading post to a shipping port, Wallula became a rail hub as trains from Portland, Pendleton, Spokane, and Walla Walla stopped at the station to receive and transfer cargo to ships sailing up and down the Columbia River. By 1879, the small town of Wallula had developed into a thriving little community with a couple of hotels where people could stop for the night before continuing on their journey. When a 1954 Spokesman Review article dubiously reported that a guest book for the rescue hotel in town had been discovered with signatures from East Coast newspaper mogul Horace Greeley, former President James Garfield, and even frontiersman Kit Carson, who allegedly listed his address as the Rocky Mountains. It was definitely not the case, considering that both Kit Carson and Horace Greeley were both dead and buried before the hotel ever opened its doors to any guests. And, as it turned out, President James Garfield had made no mention of a journey to Wallula before his assassination in 1881. According to Helga Anderson Travis's History of the Wallula Area, Nez Perce Trail, there is a possibility that Rutherford B. Hayes stopped at Wallula while stumping for President James Garfield's election in 1880, but this has not been confirmed. When the railroad workers were in town, they stayed at the Wallula Hotel, which was located across the street and was later called the Union Pacific or UP Club. Built in the 1880s, it served as the region's dance hall as well as a gathering place for people to socialize. 
A ghost story of a couple who were found killed in one of the rooms is said to have haunted the house. Wallula originally hosted classes for their children in the ruins of historic Fort Nez Perces, but a school would be built in 1881 to accommodate the expanding number of students. During that time period, the Wallula Herald was also in publication and a fire department was established the following year. By 1889, there were two grocery stores, a drug store, a mill, and Chinese laundries, as well as a couple other businesses in Wallula. Mail began to arrive in the area relatively early, perhaps indicating the importance of the small town. A boat from the Dalles was supposedly transporting mail by 1861, and a post office was established by 1862, according to the historical record. According to the historical record. Contrary to the commotion and activity of its early days, Wallula was never officially established as a municipality and is now officially known as a census-designated place. Because of the lack of a formal incorporation, it is impossible to locate records of population or expansion. It was reported in a 1950 issue of the Seattle Times that old-timers from that area thought that the population in the mid to late 1800s ranged somewhere between 1,000 and several thousand people, but is far more likely to be just under a thousand. In fact, during much of Ulula's history, the town was known as a hub of railroad activity. The city was referred to as a railroad town in a 1911 Seattle Times article, and it was frequently referred to as such into the 1950s. Though Wallula made some early attempts at farming, in 1911, for example, the town planted a 20-acre apple orchard that didn't produce much at all. Most of the town's citizens were either employed by the railway or at the train station. Additionally, floods have always been a problem in the town of Wallula's history, with its location along the banks of the Walla Walla and the mighty Columbia River, barely 326 feet above sea level, Wallula was frequently subjected to the perils of rising water because of the two rivers' proximity. A flood in 1876 reduced Wallula to a five-acre island that was surrounded by water for a short period of time, mainly since the railroad bridge was filled with stones and gravel to prevent it from being lifted by the rising waters. The town of Wallula was nearly completely submerged by rising floods again during a flood in the year 1894. As the small town continued to chug along, its history afforded the opportunity for the discovery of a few archaeological findings here and there. In 1950, the Seattle Times reported that a loosely organized group of hobbyists descended upon the site of historic Fort Nez Perces with metal detectors in order to sniff out the remains of early traders' cannons and rifles from the 1800s. The club, which went by the freaking awesome acronym CHAOS, Cannon Hunters Association of Seattle, was particularly interested in locating a cohorn mortar that had been buried somewhere beneath the silt left behind by successive floods. A cohorn is a lightweight and mobile mortar that was designed by a Dutchman by the name of Menno van Cohorn during the Nine Years' War and were used quite a bit during the Civil War, with the lightweight siege weapons even finding a use during the First World War for a period. Helga Anderson Travis's Nez Perce Trail also mentions that spowed porcelain as well as glassware and upholstered furniture from the site's previous life as a fur trading station were discovered on the premises.
In fact, the town remained a railroad town for much of the 20th century. However, Wallula, which had relied on the commerce of fur trading, riverboat freight, and rail transport throughout its existence, was now at the whim of a developing technology that it could not afford to ignore. Hydroelectric power, which would be a boon to the burgeoning regions surrounding the small town, would surely mean the end of Wallula. Even before the 20th century, there had been some call for dams, as navigating the Columbia River had long been challenging for the all-important growing commerce of the region. By 1831, the United States Army Corps of Engineers had completed a feasibility study on the construction of dams along the Columbia River and suggested that dam building should occur in 10 locations along the river. Among the dams that had been proposed was approximately 30 miles downstream from Wallula. Congressional funding for the project was finally secured in 1945 with construction on McNary Dam beginning in 1947. Lake Wallula was curated as a result of the McNary Dam. The lake would completely submerge the town of Wallula as well as its vital rail links. The site of the historic Fort Nez Perces would be the first to be submerged beneath the lake, and the Wallulans celebrated the fort's demise with a farewell celebration in April of 18. Local residents shared their memories of the area's past with wistful old-timers and eager youngsters in the audience, which included many children. The community made the choice to relocate in 1950, and citizens began relocating their homes to higher land in the following year. There was approximately 25 households who chose to be relocated, and they settled about two miles northeast of the original town site. They retained the name Wallula as the name of the town. Residents would be reimbursed for their forced relocation, and the government covered the costs of relocating their residences as well. On the 8th of March, 1953, the town of Wallula was completely drowned beneath the waters the town of Wallula was completely drowned beneath the waters of Lake Wallula. Following the completion of the McNary Dam's full height, Lake Wallula engulfed the historic district in 16 feet of water. The community had approximately 500 residents prior to the decision to build the McNary Dam. However, once it became evident that removal was impending and that work opportunities in the new Wallula would be restricted due to the absence of a rail line, many people decided to leave. In 1953, the population of the new Wallula was approximately only 60 people. One difficulty that arose was what to do about the burials that were taking place in nearby cemeteries. Following concerns over a native burial ground, according to the Seattle Times, a council of Indian elders pronounced this judgment, let the water run above the remains of our people. The Army Corps of Engineers spent $18,000 removing remains from two other local cemeteries and reinterring them at a new cemetery. Following the relocation, neither the population nor the industrial base of Wallula seemed to grow much at all. By 1979, the population of the town had increased to approximately 100 people. There was a post office, a Greyhound bus stop, and a grocery shop all in one location. A Boise Cascade facility located two miles north of town provided a consistent source of income for a small number of residents. The plant, as well as a neighboring feedlot, did, however, end up damaging the air around town, with Wallula recording readings that were twice the acceptable level of pollution. 
Finally, in 2005, Wallula was removed from the Clean Air Act's non-attainment list of polluters who had violated the law. Recent developments in the area include the construction of wind farms. Along the Columbia River's banks, wind turbines may be seen for miles in every direction. Beginning 14 years ago, back in 2008, land near Wallula was leased for the purpose of investigating whether carbon emissions could be securely absorbed underground. When the experiment started in 2013, 1,000 tons of carbon dioxide had been pumped into basalt and was being monitored for leaks. With its Native American petroglyphs covering it, the Wallula Stone serves as a living memorial to the ancient peoples who lived in and around the original Wallula area. Originally, the boulder stood near the site of the historic Fort Nez Perces. In 1910, it was oddly relocated to Portland, Oregon, where it remained on display in front of Portland City Hall until 1996. The population of Wallula today remains just under 200 people, clearly evident in the lack of a rebound from when the dam was constructed and the town had to relocate. When gold was discovered in Idaho in 1859, the town of Wallula served as a staging hub for miners heading into the nearby gold fields. Dorsey Baker's Walla Walla and Columbia line would later take them to the city of Wallula, where they spent the night and probably got involved in some form or another of debauchery. This railroad, like I mentioned earlier, came to be known as the Rawhide Railroad because, according to an early legend, the original rail lines were built of split wood, which Baker then coated with rawhide in an effort to make the trains run more smoothly. Again, according to local folklore, two men entered the train's single express car and made off with many pounds of gold in the process. They leaped off the train and traveled overland to Wallula, where they planned to take a riverboat to Portland, Oregon. Unfortunately for these bandits, a posse pursued them for several kilometers before apprehending them just outside of Wallula, where they would be promptly arrested. The gold, though, would be buried by the robbers before they were caught. They hanged the men before returning to Wallula, but they were never able to locate the stolen gold. The tranquil town of Wallula is frequently confused with the nearby city of Walla Walla, which is about 30 miles away, though treasure hunters are not perplexed by this fact. For they know that there is a hidden treasure in the form of buried gold somewhere near Wallula, though nothing has ever actually been recovered. It makes one wonder if they ever actually did bury that gold, or if they ran into someone they knew, or didn't, and maybe they were robbed. I guess we'll never know. According to some treasure hunters, the fur traders, or even the army, may have left something of worth behind, such as trade goods or an army paycheck, but the likelihood of the army leaving behind anything of value when they left the old fort is slim at best. There was also the railway robbery to consider. What train robbery, you might be asking? To be honest, that's kind of a mystery in and of itself. The Rawhide Railroad was never actually robbed, according to some treasure hunters who have sleuthed through the historical documents, while others are adamant that the theft took place sometime after 1883 when Wallula was still an important rail hub. Around the time of the supposed train robbery, Wallula had a permanent population of 800 individuals and a far greater transitory population than the rest of the area. Wallula was even a tad reminiscent of more famous boomtowns like Deadwood, where people were robbed and murdered in dark alleys and their bodies were simply thrown into the river by their assailants. 
It's said, before arriving in town, there were stories of miners burying stockpiles and then being murdered before they could go back and reclaim their treasure. By the 1920s, things had slowed down though, and Wallula had developed a reputation as a sleepy village with ghosts and mysterious buried wealth. In search of that buried treasure, occasional treasure hunters combed over the ruins of the original Wallula, but they continued to come up empty-handed. By the time the McNary Dam had been constructed and the town had been relocated once more, treasure hunters in earnest had begun digging around the ruins of both Wallulas in search of hidden riches. Construction workers, treasure hunters, and even geologists spent a great deal of time digging in the weeks before the reservoir behind the dam drowned both town sites, hoping to find the long-rumored buried gold. Although they were ultimately unsuccessful, other diggers discovered far more than they had bargained for. Because of an agreement with the residents of Wallula, the Corps of Engineers reconstructed the town on a different site, relocating certain houses and other elements as part of the reconstruction. This included the cemetery in town. It was discovered that several of the coffins had rotted as they were being dug out and relocated. So the grave diggers had to place the bodies in new coffins before reburying them. Their attention was drawn to one burial in particular, which had the coffins of Mary, Mandy, and Florence Ferguson who had died as a result of an epidemic. All of the coffins were in poor condition, and when the diggers uncovered Florence's grave, they discovered that her corpse had been twisted instead of being laid out flat in the grave, and there was also a lot of hair in her hands. Prior to the widespread use of embalming, people buried their deceased as quickly as possible to avoid the corpse rotting away. This was especially true in the scorching heat of the eastern Evergreen State, where it was necessary to prevent an epidemic from quickly spreading out of control. Doctors were overworked, and patients in a coma were sometimes mistaken for being dead. Many of them were buried alive in their graves. Florence was most likely in a coma at the time of her death, and her relatives erroneously buried her alive. When she awakened, she probably screamed and yelled, pulling her hair out in despair and fear as she realized she had been entombed. She must have tried to struggle her way out of the coffin, but the coffin of her dead sisters had kept her down, ensuring her grisly end. Despite the tale of Florence, treasure hunters occasionally make their way to present-day Wallula in search of buried gold. The majority of the time, the townsfolk politely inform the treasure hunters that the original two town sites are submerged behind the dam. People are still digging in the hills near Wallula on occasion, depending on the attitude of the locals and how foolish they believe the treasure hunter to be. We can only hope that they keep away from the graveyard. When I started out planning this episode, I had planned on wrapping up by talking about the extraordinary life of the spiritual leader Smohalla, but after finishing up the episode, I realized that his story should be his own episode, and it will be released next week in the place of the episode I had previously planned, which was to go in-depth on tuberculosis and the establishment of Furland Sanitarium, which will be released the following week as episode 28. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include The Spokesman Review, Nez Perce Trail by Helga Anderson Travis, The Tri-City Herald, The Seattle Times, Weird Washington, HistoryLink.org, Legends of America, and Revisiting Washington. A special thanks goes out to Alan Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 26, Witch Wallula, 
episode 27 will be released next week and will go in depth into the life of Smahala. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.